Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world in the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we continue our Clash of Orders mini-series where we've been talking to various key thinkers to learn more about how the concept of order is seen in different global powers. And today, I'm very happy to welcome Comfort Ero, who's going to tell us more about the Nigerian perspective. Comfort is president and CEO of the International Crisis Group. And apart from various other positions that she's held at the Crisis Group, she's worked for the International Center for Transitional Justice and was also a political affairs officer and policy advisor to special representative of the Secretary General at the UN mission in Liberia. Comfort was born in England to Nigerian parents and has spent large parts of her childhood in Nigeria. Comfort, thank you very much for joining. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. I've been asking all the guests on the podcast five big questions about order and obviously got a very wide knowledge about order and above all, disorder is seen in different parts of the African continent. But it'd be great if we could start with how you see Nigerians thinking about this because Nigeria is obviously one of the, the superpowers on the African continent and has played an important role in questions of war and peace and order, uh, not just in Africa, but as an active member in, in various UN missions as well. Maybe we can start with the first question I've asked everyone, which is about disorder. Looking at it from a Nigerian perspective, what do you think Nigerian elites see as the, the top five threats to, to order today and in the near future? Thanks, Mark. I, when you said Nigeria, I was concerned. This is a country of 200 million, so it's hard to distill what they think. But the fact that you've limited it to elites makes it a lot easier to discuss. And oftentimes, well, I used to distinguish between Lagos elites, which is the commercial um, financial capital, and Abuja um, elites, which is the political capital, but that sometimes it's an unnecessary dichotomy. I think like any other kind of elites, they do worry about the state of the economy, Nigeria has sort of multiple, I should say, security challenges that are a threat to the political class. One, I think one of the big ones is around poor governance, which has over the years eroded confidence in the country's democratic system. And I am talking to you a few months ahead of the country's next national elections. In recent years, although it doesn't necessarily affect the political elites because of where it's happening. There's been a lot of concern about violent extremism, particularly around in northeast Nigeria, northwest of the country with Boko Haram and the rising herder farmer crisis as well, which again has sort of undermined the country's economic stability. There's obviously also been issues around rising competition and conflict over resources. That's also been a central theme of Nigeria's history since the founding of its independence in the 1960s. And then more recent threat, one could argue, is around climate or migration trends in the country, not out of the countries, um, which is creating new tensions between groups, so for example, the herder farmer threat with um, herders looking for pastoral grazing grounds. But in a sense, because you ask specifically about Nigeria's elites, security in Abuja and Lagos, I think one of the concerns, the day-to-day -day concerns, is around criminality, around gangs, around banditry. But you are talking to me at a time where Nigeria faces 
multiple internal security crises located within the wider regional insecurity, you know, the Sahel, and then broaden it out to continental insecurity and then global insecurity. And Nigeria tends to have a very concentric circle in terms of how it understands order and disorder, both within the country, in the region, continentally and internationally. Great, that's really helpful. To what extent do the sort of second order effects, the decision to turn the the war in Ukraine into a kind of global economic war feature on the radar of Nigerian elites? Presumably Nigeria has benefited a lot from the demand for global energy, but um, how does that fit into their picture of order and disorder? I mean, that's an interesting question because one of the debates now occurring in in Nigeria, the questions around the ability of Nigeria's own oil companies who are now sort of bidding or looking for advantages to sell off their own oil production to take advantage of the of this energy crisis as well. So not those that belong to ExxonMobil or Shell or Total, for example, which produce about a third of Nigeria's oil. And one of the factors that is obviously driving Nigeria's national petroleum company is because they recognize that a number of European importers are looking for alternative to Russia's oil and gas in the context of, of sanctions and war of Ukraine. So there, and also because they recognize that there is a phasing out of fossil fuel at the same time in a number of sort of Western economies, they are seeing now that this is the moment to race to try and find a way to boost Nigeria's own oil and gas output. This is an important time for Nigeria. We're looking to see how it can position itself in an advantageous way, given the energy crisis, given also the global trends as a result of the war. So oftentimes, you know, the narrative coming out of Africa is, is that it's, it suffers as a result of Ukraine because of the sanctions, because of food crisis. But then when you look at an oil producing country like Nigeria, you know, it has benefited from the current high prices. It's all also amongst all the major economies on the continent, however, that is struggling with a fallout um, from a stronger dollar, for example, and anxieties about the, the coming economic crisis. So it's a country that is benefiting at one level, but also struggling um, because of the fallout at the other end as well. So it's kind of like a twin um, situation or parallel situations that, that confronts Nigeria. And you talked before about a lot of the regional crises in Africa where Nigeria has been a big player in some of the diplomacy and talk about that and solutions to manage these crises over the last few decades. But how do they intersect with domestic security? Is it because you have groups which are transnationally active and, and therefore you get kind of blowback through them or is it through refugees or what are the main ways that Nigeria is affected by some of the, the conflicts in Africa? So as I said to you in the beginning, you know, there's the domestic sort of internal security threats and Nigeria faces a multitude of security challenges at home. And then there's the the regional picture for Nigeria. And then you add on top of that the continental. Now, if you look at Nigeria and if you look at the current situation in its entire period, its independence, the gravest threat facing Nigeria today is internal and the multiple, they start with the resilience of the Boko Haram Islamist insurgency, which is largely located in the northeast. And we shouldn't forget that despite successive 
times by this current president and the one before him saying that they've largely contained this Islamic insurgency. We have seen this insurgency remain resilient. So that's one threat. And then alongside that, we've got the long-running discontent and militancy in Nigeria's rich Niger Delta region where most of the countries, all of the countries, oil production takes place on and offshore as well. And then tied to that, the most recent addition to the country's multiple security challenges um, is violence between the herders and farmers community that straddles the, the central belt, comes southwards. And then alongside that, you've got the consistent separatist Biafra agitation that stems from Nigeria's civil war in the late 1960s. Now, Nigeria was renowned at one time, Mark, for being the big brother of the region, the continental superpower. It was also seen as the country that was at the helm of regional and international peacekeeping. Its soldiers were asked to go into Sierra Leone, to Liberia, to solve crises in the 1990s. It was Nigeria that instigated a very novel idea of asking the regional economic body ECOWAS with other countries to intervene um, in crises in the region. But that was Nigeria of the late 90s and early 2000s. That is not the Nigeria of today. The Nigeria of today is very absorbed with its own internal dilemmas. It hasn't played that bigger role that many had hoped it would play in a crisis, for example, in the Sahel. And most would argue that Nigeria has been missing in action. That missing in action line has coincided with just the mountain insecurity challenges that has been confronting Nigeria the last 10 or 15 years. That's a great answer. So, And it links a bit to the, the sort of second question, which is when Nigerians think about elites again, about the idea of a future global order, what mental model do they have? Do they think of a kind of multipolar world, a kind of bipolar world between China and America? Is it more of a kind of regional world that's fragmented in different ways? What do people think is current order and what kind of order do they think we could be moving towards? Interesting question. I mean, I have to say that I don't think there is a specific model. And again, I think it's still very much, but, you know, other commentators may think differently. And those who are foreign policy analysts from within Nigeria or who watch Nigeria will very much stick in that concentric circle. I think there's recognition that we are shifting and have been sometime shifting towards a multipolar world. I don't think there is a monolithic view on in Nigeria and certainly in the, in the region um, and the continent, if we're going to broaden towards the, sort of the global order, it varies, I think, from country to country, from region to region. I mean, on the continent, Nigeria has tended to be seen as sort of one of the two superpowers. There was a time when it was Egypt and Algeria and Ethiopia and South Africa and one time Libya. But after Gaddafi's demise, that had changed. But I think there is recognition that the world of the US or a very unipolar world no longer exists. But there's also at the same time, Nigeria, like other countries on the region, and I would say maybe South Africa and Kenya also, recognize that there are other players coming onto the continent, that they have a number of choices on the continent that don't evolve around the Western traditional 
powers of the UK, France and the US or Europe writ large. They recognise the increasing role of China, that China has money, even though it shares no cultural or societal values similar to sort of most African countries, that India is the other significant player in the last 15 years. It has been Turkey that has played a large role on the continent, but a country that has the economic strength of Nigeria that has 200 or so million people, and it's a nation that travels widely, both in its region across the continent and internationally, they do see that the world, the global order is not the one of just driven by the the US, even though the US and Britain and France, particularly the UK, still influences some of the calculations and some of the decision making on on the continent. They also see the importance of China, of India, of Turkey, of the Gulf region as well. And in in that perspective, their activities on knowing that they have a diverse range of actors they can pick off in terms of defining their own future as well. So one of the really interesting questions for me, question of African regionalism, because as you said, around the turn of the century, Nigeria was playing this incredibly active role, pushing for a, you know, what some Nigerian scholars have called a Pax Africana, where, you know, a lot of the kind of regional problems were being solved by Africans themselves rather than rely on the UK and France and former colonial powers. You said earlier on that Nigeria is no longer in that kind of space that it was maybe under Obasanjo and that it's more consumed with its own problems. But do you think that in a world that's a bit more fragmented, where some of the sort of global supply chains are breaking down and there's a lot of competition between between China and America, the African regionalism and some of these pan-African ambitions might come back to life again? Certainly, there's a lot of talk in different parts of the world about non-alignment 2.0 and, you know, going back to the kind of spirit of bandung, which I think probably has a common heritage with some of these ideas about pan-African. So there's a lot that you said in there, Mark, that I think we should we should unpack. Let's deal with the regionalism and understanding why regionalism sort of became a big framing of sort of international politics for Africa in the post-Cold War era. This was an era when the US, in the wake of Black Hawk Down and Somalia, and also in the wake of the genocide in 94 in Rwanda, where the UN was heavily criticised. This was a period where a number of Western powers themselves started to beat a retreat and started to do what they call capacity building, building the capacity of regions to go in alone to be the first respondents, so to speak, in terms of dealing with their crisis. And in fact, ECOWAS was the very first one to take this decision and it didn't need the urging or the encouragement of the West. The regions or the countries and the regions themselves saw a reason to intervene in Liberia and Sierra Leone and it coincided with what they'd seen in Somalia and in Rwanda and in other places. This is also a time, Mark, when ECOWAS was the poster child of regional intervention to deal with regional insecurity. It also coincided at the time when a new era of diplomats on the continent started to redefine the continent's own understanding of intervention, non-intervention. This is the era in the early 2000s where you saw 
heightened continental diplomacy, intra-Africa diplomacy, where African states showed a propensity or willingness to intervene to solve crises in the continent and didn't need the urging of the West. This is also a time at the same time when you saw the creation of Renaissance leaders, whether it was Meles in Ethiopia, Isaias in Eritrea, Kigami and Museveni in Rwanda and Uganda. So this was the time when you saw international peace and security that was often the custodian of the Security Council now being decentralised into Africa. And then you saw the birth of the Africa Union, fast forward in 2003. And the rest then is history with a very assertive Africa Union wanted to be seen as the primary focus of international peace and security and multilateralism on the continent. Nigeria was part of this story. Nigeria was part of the birth, along with Mbekin, South Africa, of the rise of the Africa Union under Obasanjo, the same Obasanjo that has led the most recent truce peace deal in Ethiopia and who played an important role also in Liberia. I mentioned that, Mark, so that you can understand the evolution of regionalism and also this rising partnership that the United Nations called it about rehatting Africans or African peacekeeping into UN peacekeeping, a recognition that the UN itself couldn't go it alone in handling a lot of these crises as well. Nigeria was part of this era of rising diplomacy on the continent. The Nigeria of today is not the Nigeria that was part and part of this process before because of this all-consuming internal crisis that it that is dealing with. Nonetheless, ECOWAS is still seen as an important actor. The economic community of West African states and Nigeria is still a critical actor in there alongside countries like Ivory Coast and, and Senegal. Again, Nigeria's votes matters in the Africa Union and its votes matters in the United Nations. Now, in terms of where Nigeria stands in the non-alignment which emerged, in a sense we have a non-alignment redux as a result of Ukraine, Nigeria voted in favour of the very first resolution condemning Russia's invasion into Ukraine in March, I think it was, of this year. And Nigeria has consistently voted in favour to condemn what it saw as an act of invasion. And it's chosen to be in that line. And this is a very Nigerian position. The other country that's also taken this course is Ghana as well. If you look at other places, South Africa, South Africa, the other superpower on the continent, has taken a slightly different perspective in terms of how it views the situation in relation to Russia's intervention in Ukraine. Its foreign policy on this has sort of lacked clarity and focus. It's tended to be reluctant to use its considerable diplomatic assets, for example, to position itself either on the continent or in the world stage. And it's partly a legacy of its own apartheid regime sort of aggressive intervention. So it's been a little bit less reluctant as opposed to Nigeria. And yet these are the two most important countries that we look at in terms of thinking about Africa's position. Now, the third actor in this story, Mark, and the one that we all look to in terms of sort of understanding Africa's position is Kenya. And of course, a lot of it stems from what Ambassador Martin Kimani said on the eve of the invasion as well. And then I'll wrap it up, Mark, by saying that the other, I think, important voice in this is the chair of the African Assembly of Heads of States, President Macky Sall, who clearly said, at the recent UN General Assembly, that this should not be seen as the West versus the rest, that we shouldn't see Ukraine as a loyalty test, 
and that would rather stay out of this contest as they see it between the US and, and Russia. They don't see it as a war just between Ukraine and, and Russia, but they see it as a war between the West and, and Russia. And they then refer to lots of double standards, whether it's Iraq or Libya or other contexts as well. That brings me to the third big question, which is about this idea of the rule-based order. To what extent do African elites, leaders think that there is a rule-based order? Or is this just something that Western states invoke whenever they want to, to do things in order to support their own policies? This is an interesting question because I think there are contradictions in this one. On the one hand, there is a support for the idea of the rules-based order, or at least the principles that underpin the United Nations Charter, because the United Nations Charter was seen as the bastion for decolonization. And in a sense, a number of African countries that emerged from 1957 first with Ghana look, for example, at the United Nations Charter and the principles around respect for sovereignty and the inviability of borders. These are important precepts and you'll find them transported into what was then the Organization of African Unity and now what we call today the Africa Union. And one of the most interesting discussions I listened to this year was between Ambassador Martin Kimani and Jendaya Fraser. She was the former Undersecretary of State for for African Affairs um, in the U.S., And there, Kamani said these three principles around sovereignty, political independence and the inviability, these are strong principles that the continent will continue to to strive for. And it's in this name that the Western powers are also trying to urge African countries to support Ukraine. Yet at the same time, it's these same African statesmen and leaders who will also question the West over its double standards and then question whether there really is rules-based order because of the way in which these rules found in the UN Charter have been usurped as well. So, you know, you'll hear people say, don't talk to me about some some rules-based order when the West has undermined them and in the same breath they'll recognise the importance of them. And that's what led to decolonization on the continent as well. So it's an interesting sort of contradiction as well. And, And at the same time, I think, Mark, the reason why I do think that a number of leaders, the reason why they have been supportive of Ukraine is because they absolutely believe also in the idea of not relitigating borders because they see this as leading to perpetual conflict. So one of the decisions that was taken at the time of colonization was to reluctantly embrace the borders that were drawn by colonial powers. They struck a consensus at the OAU, the AU's predecessor, not to relitigate these borders. So it's an interesting conundrum in terms of how they view the Ukrainian war. Sympathy, because those principles, but concerns because of the double standards and hypocrisy of the West. That was great. And it kind of leads me into the sort of fourth question, which is about some of the big concepts which lie behind the idea of order. From a Nigerian perspective, are there particular ways of thinking about these things which are maybe different from the ways they're defined in the West? Or are there other concepts and Nigerian concerns uh, about order? Mm, that's an interesting question. So you didn't talk about elites, which is good. <laughs> you talked about how Nigerians would, would view that. And I think here it's worth thinking also about Nigeria's youth who have a very different understanding 
of these issues. So concepts like power and freedom and justice and then how they view order today. So I don't think there's anything uniquely Nigerian in what I'm about to say. I think most Nigerians easily identify two major dimensions of their country's power. So first is the economic one, because they're sort of petroleum or producing country. And I think secondly, most commentators, most foreign policy analysts in Nigeria recognize that the other important aspects of their global identity also is the diplomatic and military position that they occupy, um, again, both in the region and the continent and internationally, as a leader of the continent, as a contributor to numerous operations to keep peace and to curb sort of disorder in the region. I think most Nigerians believe that citizens' freedom and justice are the best guarantees of what they would describe as a democratic order. I also think that, and this is a slightly controversial thing to say, after two decades of civilian rule with scant developmental dividends mark, some also now question the suitability of Nigeria's American-style democracy in addressing the country's multi-dimensional challenges. Relatedly, I think Many also hold a very dim view of the judicial system, which they see as largely failing to provide justice, especially to the poor. But at the same time, while not rejecting democracy, I think there is in Nigeria and elsewhere on the continent um, a growing demand for deep reforms in governance, in public funds management in, and in justice delivery as well. So I think the continued ignoring of these demands would exacerbate the risk of disorder, conflict and insecurity in the country in the future as well. Great. So we've got one question left, which is about history. When Nigerian elites are kind of thinking about trying to understand the world as we are at the moment. What are the key events or periods from the past that shape their understanding today? Are there particular moments in Nigerian history or periods which resurface and which shape people's understanding of, of where we're at at the moment or how or what the future might look like? I think, you know, and again, I don't think this is specific to Nigeria. I think this is continent sub-Saharan perspective. It wouldn't surprise you when I say that the Berlin Conference of 1848, which regulated um, European colonization and trade in Africa, <laughs> and then carved up um, the continent among European powers, and, and then effectively imposed a, a new European order. So that would be the number one in chronological history. Obviously tied to that, and then is a period of colonial rule, which then defined internal order in a number of African countries and societies and created institutions that enforced that order, which then were retained by a number of post-colonial states. And and a lot of Nigeria's problems go back to the way in which Nigeria was created and ruled and governed under colonial period as shaping then post-colonial Nigerian rule a lot of its problems as well and then of course for a lot of us the post-independent era the very first post-colonial country and Nigeria's was in 1960 that was seen as a moment of high optimism mark and also a moment of pan-continental solidarity not long after that the Organization of African Unity was born and it represented that pan-colonial solidarity and the creation of newly independent countries who looked forward to an era of 
economic growth and greater integration. And then since then, Mark, you've seen upheaval in the 70s and the 80s, including failures of key political leaders um, who swiftly moved from authoritarian and ungovernable governance at home and a number of key African countries um, becoming a theatre of Cold War competition. I think that exacerbated domestic politics and then led to crisis and conflict and warfare that really inhibited the country's progress. And then you get to the great moment across the continent in the 1990s after the horrors of Rwanda, then you saw the emergence of the Renaissance leaders. You saw a number of international actors swimming around Rwanda, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Uganda and South Africa, and seeing these as the rebirth of leaders who were liberating their countries. But again, we've seen a lot of disappointment with many of these leaders because some of them either tried to stay in power indefinitely or then became generally unaccountable at home. I guess we shouldn't ignore two contemporary crises that have left a bitter taste and acrimony in the mouths of a number of African leaders. And it was projected, I think, in the Security Council. One is Libya. For Nigeria, Libya is a particularly sore point. A number of Nigerian leaders and West Africans as well saw the war in Libya as contributing to the strife in the Sahel. And generally it fed, I think, a period and still is feeding a period of anti-Western sentiments as well. So I think Libya is a real sore point for a number of African countries and then led to a period which we're still witnessing of anti-Western sentiment as well. And is also left to this standoff that you're seeing now in the Sahel between France and Russia. And Mark, it shouldn't be lost upon us that we are talking on the day where I think Burkan, Operation Burkan, the French military force, is officially pulling out and ending its engagement in the Sahel. So in a sense, we've come full circle in that story. And what was the second one? You said that these two things had left a bit of taste, the first being like... I think we can call it a period of hyper-militarisation in the Sahel, and then, of course, culminating in the resurgence of Russia and the contests between Russia and France now in the Sahel. Well, we covered a huge amount of ground, and there's one thing left to do in this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Is there anything um, that you would recommend to our listeners well, um, you know, I was listening to all your other podcasts and you know, just thinking this is about international systems and international relations as seen from a number of these countries. And when I was studying, the one book that I cited several times was a book by um, a professor, Christopher Clapham. And he wrote a very good book back in the 1990s about Africa and the international system the politics of state survival. It's a very, very good book. I would recommend it for anybody who just wants to get a sense of what order means in Africa it- itself. And then, I mean, if you're really focused on contemporary Africa, my good friends at Africa Confidential always put out a very good every two weeks newsletter that really does tell you of the happenings on the continent, both from an economic diplomatic perspective. And it's a very sort of good insight into what's happening and then somebody to sort of keep an eye on and to watch because I think she often writes some interesting things is Zainab Usman she's at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and she wrote an interesting piece on why is the US role in Africa shrinking and then she looked at Russia China and Turkey and how they're making 
bold moves across the continent. None of it focused on Nigeria. In all of these pieces, you'll get a sense of Nigeria anyway, because it tends to be the reference point for a number of scholars looking at the continent. We all want to know what Nigeria or South Africa thinks. That's fantastic. We'll put a link up to all the publications on our website, uh, ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do use whatever platform you've listened to us on now to get a subscription to The World in 30 Minutes. And while you're there, it'd be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating, as that will help bring other listeners to the podcast. But for now, from Comfort Arrow and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this episode was Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Natalia Schwartz.